Okay, we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. And I'd like you, if you would, please follow along with me in the scriptures if you can. Um, I know some of you have electronic Bibles, some have paper. I think you could follow on either. Title of the sermon is The Lord's Supper, and this is part three. One other thing I wanted to say, um, as a side note, every Christmas, Amy and I get a lot of gifts and cards from you all, and we're very appreciative of that. I typically am up on writing thank you notes, but I got sidetracked the past week and a half and didn't write any, so I'm just going to give you a collective thank you. Uh, from Amy and I for all that you've, you've done for us over the holidays. Thank you. All right, we're picking up this morning where we left off December 10th, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And with the holidays being over, we will um, be looking at Corinthians for the next three weeks in a row. This, this includes the first week. This is the first week, I should say. So with that said, let's, let's dig in here. Let's begin with just a brief review on a few points. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, which Pastor Steve just read, is obviously addressing the Corinthians in regard to their conduct during the Lord's Supper. As we saw last time, Paul is concerned about the importance of unity and reverence when coming to the Lord's table. Unity and reference. We're taught by Paul in our text. He says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. We, I should say, what else have we Learned about reverence for the Lord's table besides discerning the body of the Lord, which we went over on December 10th. Well, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's John 6, 51. I'm just going to ad-lib here and point something out. Um, when the Bible talks about all people being saved and the world and Jesus dying for the world, for the life of the world, okay? All those phrases are scriptural, um, but they don't mean each and every person in the world is marked for salvation. What they mean, it means Jew and Gentile. The world is Jew and Gentile in the scriptures. That's the context 99% of the time. Okay? When God, talking about the bread of life again, when God incarnate willfully goes to his own Roman crucifixion and in so doing sacrifices his flesh and spills his blood for the life of the world. Paul says, 
that you better think long and hard about due reverence before you participate, not only in commemoration of what the Lord did, but in submission to the Lord for what he did. This is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Jesus is the spotless, sinless Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, all peoples, all nations, Jew and Gentile. Hope that sinks in. Instead of being what they should have been, okay, at this, the Corinthians, which is joyful, they were disputing and treating each other very, very unchristian-like. That's a word. Instead of the, I should say, instead of an immense thankful joy, the Corinthians were more interested in their selfish behavior. And this is where I want you to look at the scriptures. You'll see that in 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 22. I, want you, I just want you to follow along with me so you can see that I'm not lying to you. Just look in your word. Paul underscores the gravity of the situation in verse 19, stating that factions or divisions must exist. Remember, we looked at this last time. They must exist to reveal those who are genuinely approved by God and those that are not. These factions and divisions suggest that the Corinthians, their behavior was not aligned with God's will and was hindering the spiritual growth within their Christian community. This is why Paul challenges the Corinthians to engage in self-examination, verse 28. This call to self-examination emphasizes the personal responsibility each believer has in maintaining unity in the body of Christ. I want to read that one more time. This call to self-reflection emphasizes the personal responsibility of each believer in maintaining unity in the body of Christ. We all have a responsibility to shun conflict and welcome unity. The Lord's Supper is a sacred time for believers to come together in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. And our conduct during this time should reflect the love, the humility, and the unity that Christ exemplified. You and I, like the Corinthians, should heed to the call of self-examination, and we should seek reconciliation with others where needed, and our gatherings should be marked by the love and unity that honor Christ that honor our Savior and what he did for us. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24? Jesus is teaching from the Sermon on the Mount and he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go to be reconciled to them 
then come and offer your gift. Our Lord is emphasizing the importance of reconciliation and the importance of resolving conflicts with other Christians before approaching God in worship. Folks, participating in the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. The lesson here is this. If someone is about to make an offering or present a gift at the altar and realizes there is unresolved conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, they should first go and reconcile with that brother and sister before continuing on in their act of worship. And that doesn't just include communion. That includes worship at the beginning of a church service or the end of a church service. You can't go to the Lord in worship properly when you're harboring bitterness and ill-reconciled feelings in your heart towards a brother or sister in the Lord. Are you with me on that? As I said, it should be true with any act of worship, but it should especially be true when approaching the communion table. Why? As Christians, we should want to be about the business of reconciling with those who may be in conflict with us, not only for the sake of the other person, but also because we know that just as sin and strife will, or I'm sorry, just as sin and strife with someone will hinder our relationship with that particular person, it will also greatly hinder our communication with the Lord. How so? Matthew 6.15, Jesus said, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It can't get much simpler. Do we really think that the God of the universe is going to accept our act of worship if we knowingly and will, willfully choose to continue in unresolved conflict with someone? Especially, as I said, a brother or sister to boot. Newsflash, he, he isn't. He's not interested. That's one of the reasons why Paul makes it clear in our text that those Christians who don't, do not resolve conflict, but instead foster factions and divisions like the Corinthians in their lives, in their church, in their community, will not only eat and drink the cup of the Lord, but will do so in an unworthy manner. Paul says, and in doing that, he says, verse 27 of our text, they will be guilty of the body and blood of our Lord. Paul says in verse 28, you will drink judgment upon yourselves. Then he says, this is the reason why many, that, that word many struck me when I was studying this, many among you are weak, sick, or dead. I've known people over the years, I know people now, who have refused to speak to a family member or a friend for 20, 25, 30 years because of some stupid, petty disagreement decades ago that they can't even remember all the details to. Guess what? 
Like Sylvester Stallone in First Blood, let it go. Remember when he holds Brian Dennehy up against the tree? Give you, give you a fight, you'll never, give you a war, right? He says, just let it go. And of course, Brian Dennehy didn't, but okay. We can let it go. People, <laughs> people fight with their spouse on the way to church. I should say the whole way to church. And they get out of the car and they come in here and they partake of the Lord's Supper while they have bitterness and anger in their hearts against their spouse. And others provoke their children on the way to church to anger in the car. Ephesians 6, 4. You didn't know the Bible talked about anger in cars? That's Ephesians 6, 4. And then these parents, after they just exasperated their kids and made them angry, come in, um, take place at the communion table. Christian pastors come together in Christian conferences and seminars. Been to a hundred of them. To learn everything from how to make their church grow to how to make their hair grow. I missed that one. And then they, they break away from their workshops and their, their conferences, you know, break away to eat, break away to go to the book table. When they slander and rip each other behind each other's backs the entire time. Gossip. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, exclamation point. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Then Paul says to, in Corinthians verse 10 of that same chapter, for this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul doesn't want to tear down. He wants to build up. But the Corinthians are putting him in a position where he has to correct them. He has no choice. I, I think that it speaks volumes that the that Paul says this, that he's not trying to tear people down. I want you to know that I'm not trying to tear people down in this pulpit. I'm just simply preaching the text. Um, God gives us these responsibilities and we're expected to um, be good stewards of them. What did the author of Hebrews say in verse 17 of chapter 13? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Did you catch what he said? He said that your pastors and leaders will have a part in giving an account for your souls. Scripture interprets Scripture, folks. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would. Chapter 5, 1 Peter 1 through 4.
Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, that means not for financial gain, greedy financial gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over you, those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Like I said, that's First Peter 5, 1 through 4. As pastors, we are accountable to you. And the Bible has, Jesus has set it up so that you're accountable to the leadership as the congregation. But what I want you to see is that we will receive a harsher judgment if we don't carry out our pastoral calling and office in your life properly. Properly means these types of things we are going over here this morning that may not exactly be the most popular things for a pastor to talk about with his congregation, but they are very, very necessary things. They are, nece they are necessary for our own personal Christian well-being and the well-being of the church. As I said earlier, when we come to the Lord's table, we need to come in reverential holiness. I'm going to define holiness here, okay? Holiness at the Lord's Supper means that you are not incessantly each week coming to the table with willful, habitual sin in your life that you need to confess. Remember, I, I said willful, habitual. We all have sins to confess every time we approach the Lord's Supper. But there are some of us that have very concerning sins that we've confessed a thousand times and we still haven't had victory in that area. And that's something that if that's you, you need to talk to uh, one of the pastors or, or deacons about. You certainly can and will receive forgiveness of your sins when you repent before you partake of communion. What I'm trying to get you to see is you shouldn't be confessing the same sins over and over and over again for 30 years or that same sin that you struggle with. There are seasons in our lives when we struggle with sin. There are seasons in our lives when we struggle with old sins. And the key is not to struggle. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Our attitude at the supper should be one of joy. Do we ever talk about joy when we talk about the Lord's Supper? I would think we'd want to commemorate the Lord's Supper with joy because it's the most awesome event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, ascension in history, in human history. 
that's why we refer to it as, Pastor Steve especially, celebrating the supper. We are celebrating not only what Christ did, but where we are in Christ because of what he did. We should be joyful about that. When we come to communion together, this is what we're celebrating. And I forgot to put the scripture passage down, so I'm just going to read the passage. You guys tell me which passage it is. Yeah, <laughs> this is first. I, is this first Corinthians eleven. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received: that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is why we should come to the Lord's table with joy and celebration. The Lord initiates all of this. He enables us to love him and to initiate these things. Nobody has a better reason, folks, to be joyful than we do. We have eternal life through Christ. We don't seek to live holy lives out of drudgery. We seek to live holy lives out of thankfulness, off the charts, thankfulness, gratefulness for God's salvific plan, sheer and utter grace in our lives. He didn't have to do any of this. He exercised, if, listen, if he exercised complete justice without any mercy or any grace, we would all be damned to hell. But God is good. And I know, you know, there are some of you, some of you who are sitting there right now and they're thinking, you're thinking, hey, Mike, um, I understand everything you're, you're saying, but to be honest, I'm still having issues with that whole habitual sin part uh, you're talking about. Just can't seem to get the holy life going that the Bible speaks about. If that's you... If it's not you now, it will be you at another time because we all go through these doubts and these things. If that's you, the first thing you need to know is that a holy life will not, will not save you. The second thing you need to know is that a holy life will prove that you're saved. I know it sounds contradictory, but it's not. We don't seek to live holy lives to gain merit in obtaining salvation. We do not seek to live holy lives to gain merit in obtaining salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with merit. 
has nothing to do with any of your good works. It's entirely of God's sovereign grace. However, we do know from Scripture that without holiness, we won't see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. The author of Hebrews says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So what's the secret to living a holy life? There is no secret. There are actually step-by-step instructions in Scripture. And you know what? They're pretty easy to follow. Instructions. Turning your Bibles, if you would, to John 15. Let's see how easy it is. The first thing that we need to do to maintain holiness and a reverential attitude, to be quick to have reconciliation, all these things I talked about. We need to walk with Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. Who's the vine? Jesus, right? Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, let me say that one more time. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear fruit. No, that you bear much fruit. Why? Proving yourselves to be my disciples. You prove yourself to be Christ's disciple by bearing much fruit. Now, how do we do that? Jesus says in verse four, you remain in me and I'll remain in you. That's how it's done. So there seems to be a dual responsibility here. You submit to Christ and he will work in you to produce not only much fruit, Jesus says, but the father also, but the father also will do what else for you? He will prune you to make you even more fruitful. 
Pruning isn't necessarily chastisement or punishment. In the end, it's life. And we should thank God for it. If you know anything about gardening, which I know nothing about, um, you'll know that pruning a tree extends its longevity. What seems bad for the tree at first is actually the best thing for the tree. So the Lord must cut away our overgrown and dead branches to encourage growth in our lives. More fruit, much fruit. That's the aim of Christ in your life. That is the aim of Christ in your life. He wants to produce more fruit through you in your Christian circle, in your family, in your church, etc., etc. You have to be willing to submit. Pruning, many times, will show you your sin. Pruning, many times, will show you your idols. And God will push you, sometimes very hard, to change for the better. It's just like a parent with a child. If you leave your child to their own devices and you don't discipline them, those kids are going to be useless when they grow up, completely useless. But if you love them, you will discipline them so that they don't go wayward, or if they do go wayward, they come back. Regardless, Jesus uses the pruning process to grow us, to convict us, to lead us to repentance, to cause us to make reconciliation with people we're at odds with, and to grow us in holiness, fruit production. Sometimes it takes months, sometimes it takes years for God to work out and iron out certain things in our lives that are ugly. But the fact remains, he does it. He doesn't give up on us. So let's look at the trials, by the way. Let's just look at the trials as pruning and let's look at them as a gift. James calls them a joy. James, the Lord's brother, he admonishes us to view them as a joy, James 1, 2 through 4. Okay, so how do we remain in Christ? Remember, we're reading John 15, unless you remain in me. How do we remain in Christ? This is easy too. It's easy in name. It's easy when you look at the scriptures. A little bit harder to do, but it's doable. John 15, nine through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love. How do we remain in your love, Jesus? This is, the, this is the easy part. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Wow. So all we gotta do is do what you say, Jesus. 
It's all we got to do. And we'll remain in you. That's what he just said. And what will that do for us? It'll bring us joy. Our joy will be, ours and the Lord's joy will be complete. We also remain in Christ because Christ first loved us. Verse 9. We remain in his love by keeping his commandments. Verses 10 and 14. Jesus says in verse 11 that he has told us these things so that his joy may be complete and our joy may be complete. Then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment. Okay, so now he's narrowing his commandments down. First, he says, you want to remain in me? You got to obey me. And now he's singling out this. He says, this is my, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? Verse 13, greater love has no one, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is my command to you, that you love one another. Let's get practical for a minute. How do we actually bring ourselves to not only keep the Lord's commandments, but also love each other to the extent that we will gladly lay down our lives for each other? We have to remain in Christ. And for starters, you cannot in any way keep the Lord's commandments if you don't know what his commandments are. You must be in the word daily, several times a day, to know and oft remind yourself what these commandments are that our Lord speaks of. You must take word breaks throughout your day. I think of many Muslims that I've worked with, both adults and young adults. They stop what they're doing six times a day to pray. No matter what they're doing, they stop and they pray. They take time. I hate to say it, but let's take a page out of their book. We don't have to. We can actually go back to the church fathers and they teach this. And guess what? The Bible teaches this in numerous places. You need to be in the word. You're not going to know what Christ's commandments are. You're not going to know how Christ wants you to live unless you know what Christ has said. You're not going to know what Christ has said unless you read your Bible. The world, its strife, its dissension, its issues that plagues your life and saturates you in despair will not go away by watching Oprah. You must read the scriptures daily, several times a day. Take your phone out, go in the bathroom, sit in the stall, read a paragraph, pray for two minutes, go back to work. 
So when I say it's easy, I mean the process is very easy. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to comprehend. But doing it is going to take some effort. We have to put forth effort if we're going to live holy lives. So we must know the Lord's commandments. I know a pastor who I've known him for 40 years. Carries his Bible everywhere he goes. Patty's laughing. She knows who I mean. When I say carries his Bible everywhere he goes, I mean if he gets out of his car to go into a gas station to pay for gas, he takes his Bible in the gas station. Why? Well, there's two reasons that I've observed with him over the years. I've been on hospital visitations with him. I've done funerals with him, etc., etc. I've seen him stop what he's doing, and he has stopped what he was doing with me. Him and I have lunch. Before we partake of the food, we not only pray over the food, but he opens up his Bible and reads a psalm. He says, let's take a word break. He reads a psalm. Sets the mood, sets the tone of the conversation on the things of God. Then we eat and we talk about the things of God. The other thing he does with his Bible is he carries around tracks, magazines, all kinds of evangelistic things. He gives them to people every day. And I say that without exaggeration. He leaves them in restaurants. He gives um, Mandarin Bibles to Chinese waiters and waitresses. Always thinking how he can advance the gospel. How he can advance, herald it, herald it, herald it. Always thinking. Always carrying the Bible. Always in the Word. He's the holiest guy I know. He is the holiest guy I know. Take word breaks, folks. You must also commune with the Lord in prayer. Again, not hard. Bible reading, obey Christ's commandments, prayer, and fellowship with one another. Fellowship with other believers. New believers especially. You need the fellowship of seasoned saints. Seasoned saints will guide you and direct you as a new Christian. Or as a struggling Christian. The last thing that we need to do to remain in Christ, to live a holy life, to obey the Lord's commands, and to come to the communion table with a right attitude, in a right mind, in a right way. And that is this, again, simple. Stop polluting yourself with the world and the things of the world. Folks, if you're a true Christian, the world will hate you. The pastor I just talked about, I saw a guy threaten to shoot him in the head one time. Right on Brownsville Road in Mount Oliver because he was sharing the gospel with him. Do you think that deterred him from sharing the gospel? That was in, that I saw that take place, that was in 1989. I was there, I was standing right there with him. He's still a herald of the gospel. The world's going to hate you, Jesus said, because they hated him first. He says, if you were of the world, it would love you as its own. 
Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And Jesus said in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father as well. Fighting for keeps here, folks. You cannot ride the fence. Won't work. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. The two are entirely incompatible. So many so-called Christians try to be cosmopolitan. You know the type. Seasoned creatures of the world. They're up on all the latest lingo, movements, and fads. You can't be like them. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of the Lord's. Christ commands us to put both feet on his side of the fence. Cut your ties with those things in the world that are pulling you down and making you sin. Can't make it any simpler. You know what those things are? You need to destroy them in your life. Turn them over to Christ. Bear much fruit. You'll have reverence for the supper. You'll have unity for the supper. You'll have love for the Christians you eat the supper with. If you do these things, get pruned. Grow. Remain in the vine. Weather, weather the pruning process. Word, prayer, fellowship. Word, prayer, fellowship. World. No world. Okay.